Genesis chapter 3 in your Bibles, the doctrine of headship. So for the past several weeks within our study of the fall of man, I have stressed the fact that Satan needed to get to Adam in order to be successful in his efforts to claim a kingdom. And that because Adam had what we call headship. He had headship in the marriage and he had dominion over the created world. So that it was not the actions of Eve that actually determined the fate of the created order, but the actions of Adam. But there's another concept of headship beyond just headship and marriage. We've already talked about marriage and the fact that, that um, Adam was the head of his wife, Eve. And we talked about that. We went to 1 Timothy 2 and we connected those dots and understood the relevance of Genesis chapter 3 and the nature, actually Genesis 2 as well, Adam being formed, then Eve. And then as 1 Timothy says, then uh, Eve being deceived and being in the transgression there and the nature of headship in the home. But we haven't yet talked about the doctrine of headship as it relates to the broader concept of Adam, his sin, and the relationship of Adam's sin to mankind. And so this is going to be a little bit more of a doctrinal message than necessarily an exhorting message as we try to walk through the concept of why it is that we talk about sin the way we do and how our sin connects to Adam's sin. And there is a little bit of controversy, and I'm going to speak a bit on this controversy today. We're going to navigate some of those waters and think through a couple of different perspectives on the nature of sin, the nature of Adam's sin, our connection to Adam's sin, and um, why it is we stand where we stand. So some will say that we are born sinners, meaning that my three-month-old little girl uh, is already fully vested with a sin nature and naturally separated from God. Others will say that a person is not actually ushered into that place of personal separation from God, that sinful state, until a a time where they knowingly enter into um, sin. And and we would call that with a buffer to some age of of innocence and then into an age of accountability. Now, those that say we're still born into sin might acknowledge an age of accountability as well. Um, But there are these different ideas that people have formed And I want to kind of try to iron some of those things out, sort some of those things out today, because what we believe about this is generally informed by our view, first of original sin, and also about this concept of headship, or at least it's supposed to be. It is actually not uncommon, as many of us know, for things to be turned on their heads when it comes to the way that we see the world around us and how we understand doctrine. And what I mean by that is this. We'll often take how we feel about something and we'll impose how we feel about something upon our understanding of the text around us. And it's not, or the the text as, as we read it, it's not necessarily a bad thing for us to observe the world as it exists, to say obviously the world exists in a certain way and so I'm going to recognize that as I seek to interpret the word of God to not find a tremendous disparity between the world as it exists and then what I interpret the word of God to say. However, we need to be careful when we seek to impose, say, how we feel upon something or about something, excuse me, upon the text or upon the issues at hand. Something, say, is children being born in sin or being born separated from God. We would say, well, I don't like some of the implications of that possibility, so I'm going to reject it outright. And this is something that we want to avoid, not only because it's bad interpretation and bad doctrine, which lays the groundwork for other avenues of bad interpretation and bad doctrine, but also because it does a disservice to God's character. God doesn't need my help 
to justify his actions and his intentions. God does not need my help to justify. He does not need my help to uh, bring about in the lives of others or in the understanding of others who he is or his, his true character. I don't need to compromise my view of some particular doctrine because it might seem at first glance to be unbecoming or unflattering to the character of God. God's character is not unbecoming. It is not unflattering. We know that from the word of God. God is the pinnacle of goodness. He is also the pinnacle of justice. And if we want to do the best service to who God is, we don't do that by avoiding doctrinal problems or changing the character of God to try to avoid things that seem unpalatable, we do that by extolling and elevating God's character, representing him properly, and then God can justify himself. And his word will justify him. If God says that he is the pinnacle of mercy and goodness, then we know that to be true. And we know that as we understand the word of God properly, his mercy and his goodness will shine through. So today we're going to talk about this doctrine of headship and relate it to the events that we see here in Genesis chapter 3. And so what we are speaking of is, uh, is the doctrine of headship as a subset of a doctrine that we call the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin states that there are two contexts within which we consider the sinful state of mankind. The first and more natural context is the sin's that we commit. You are a sinner because you have sinned. You have made conscious choices in your life to offend the word, the will, and the character of God. You have done things that are outside of faith, and Romans tells us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So this is the natural concept of sin. If I am appealing to someone to help them understand that they are a sinner, I am appealing to the reality of the fact that they have sinned, and we all know that we have sinned. The Ten Commandments is very good at helping us with this because those Ten Commandments, no one's batting a thousand on those, right? We have lied. We have stolen. We have disobeyed our parents. We have put elevated other things above that which is God. We have put other gods before him. We have done these things. We have lusted. And because we have done these things, we know that we are sinners. I am a sinner because I have sinned. So that's the first and most natural concept. But then we have this concept that, that in, in theological circles we call the doctrine of original sin. And this is where Genesis chapter 3 comes in. This is where the doctrine of headship and the nature of Adam comes in. The connection between Adam and us. And this is the idea that man is born in sin, born naturally separated from God, that it's not just that I am a sinner because I have sinned, but it's also that I sin because I am a sinner. And this is the more controversial of the two ideas because it dives directly to the heart of our emotions. What about babies? What about the handicapped? What about people that can't understand? If we're born naturally separated from God, what about the people that can never come to a conscious decision about the nature of God's character, about the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about those people who have never learned, who have never heard all of those different things? But again, within the scope of the character of God, we don't have to worry, nor do we need to bend doctrine to protect God from the implications of his own word. Because God is good and God is just and we can trust him. So whereas the idea of the sins that we commit establishes the concept that we are sinners because we sin, the doctrine of original sin states not just that we are sinners because we sin, but as I said, that we sin because we're sinners. 
that we are already separated from God before any conscious choice to sin per se. And that thus the choice to sin will be absolutely inevitable in the life of every person because we are already exhibiting the characteristics of a sinful person prior to even being necessarily conscious of ourselves. And, and I think that the doctrine of original sin is, I say it's the more difficult one to grasp, but if you're a parent, it's really not that difficult to grasp. Or if you've been around young kids, it's not that difficult to grasp. I've got my little two-year-old there, and I have uh, um, my three-month-old there, and I have my, what's next, four. My four-year-old is somewhere around here, and we can go up the line. And uh, while, we, while I would not put my two-year-old or my four-year-old into any sort of age of accountability yet, I can certainly already see a sin nature. I can see deceit. I can see manipulation. I can see lies. I can see these things, and I can tell you I did not teach them to do these things, right? But they see these things, and they have learned, they, 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 they haven't necessarily learned these things. Maybe my younger one have from the older ones, but you can see it even in the firstborn, right? You can see the manipulation. You can see the deceit. You can see the propensity that would say, yes, it seems as though there is something in my child's character that is already slightly bent, bent out of order a little bit that needs to be straightened, that needs to be corrected. And so the question of headship is actually a sub-question of the question of original sin, Asking first that we settle whether or not original sin is a valid doctrine, and then asking how this original sin relates itself to mankind through the concept of headship. And the biblical center of this whole question is given to us in Romans chapter 5. I had you turn to Genesis chapter 3, but in fact, we, we did teach through verses 14 through 19 last week. This is kind of a continuation of that. And we'll actually be spending most of our time today in Romans 5, so you're welcome to turn there. Of course, it will be on the screen as always. But you're welcome to turn to Romans chapter 5 this morning as we walk through uh, this concept of original sin together. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 to set the foundation of Paul's thoughts on the argument, though the actual context of the doctrine of original sin starts in verse 12. And... um, We'll do our best to kind of set a, a context really with, with the book of Romans. For those of you that know Romans and, and more broadly that know Paul's writings, if you really want to give the context, I'd have to go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Because Paul, he's, he's just, he, he's, he'd be a Lego master in our time today, right? It's just everything's built on something else. It's just built up. And, and, and he always starts at the foundation. So that's how Paul rolls, but we're going to do our best to just jump into chapter 5, verse 1, and through that, gain the context necessary to understand his argument. So the Bible says, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, 
When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So, of course, I'm giving you the context here uh, as it relates to the direct context leading up to this, um, this passage. And as we read, Paul is speaking of justification by faith alone. The result of that justification being peace with God. And this peace with God brings access into grace and all of the things that grace uh, uh, affords for us, particularly rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Tribulation, working patience, patience, experience, experience, hope, hope making not ashamed. Because I am justified by faith and I have this peace with God, tribulation itself is in and of itself, still working in me great things. It works in me a greater connection with my faith because it works in me all the more hope in that which is to come. My anticipation of salvation in the midst of sorrows is even greater than my anticipation in the days of plenty. Now in verse 6, Paul then turns his mind toward the work of Jesus Christ himself And why it needed to happen. When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And this is marvelous. And it is indeed a marvel. Because very few on this earth would give their lives even in exchange for a good man. Even in exchange for a righteous man. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is a marvel to behold. Right? This is a marvelous thing. God sent his son and gave his life not for good men, but for bad men, right? For unrighteous men. Jesus died not to not not to uh, to to die for the the best among us, but for the for the worst among us. Of course, that meaning every man. For indeed, we are all sinners, as Paul has already established well in Romans to this point. So then verse eight, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul makes a distinction, a distinction between Jesus dying for sinners which is every man who has ever lived, and Jesus saving only a subset of those whom he died for, being the ones who are justified. Taking us back to verse 1, which told us that justification comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus died to pay for sin for sinners and then justifies those that come to him by faith. So Jesus died for all men, but only those who put their faith in him will be justified and so saved from wrath through him. And Paul explains how this could be in verse 10. That if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, then how much more does the resurrection of Jesus Christ bring with it the promise of eternal salvation? That as Jesus died for all men, so the, the faith in his death and in his resurrection will bring eternal salvation and so great salvation to those who will receive it. The joy of atonement from sin. And it is at this point that Paul gets into the relationship between men and sin. And this is where we begin to think about the concept of original sin and by extension headship. So Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So here Paul cites that sin entered into the world by one man, 
And then death entered into the world through sin. And we know that this is the case. Romans chapter 6 will go on to say, for the wages of sin is death. So we've already talked about the idea of death as established in the Bible through Genesis chapter 3. Death is separation. And not only the separation of the body from the spirit, not only of the separation from the material of the immaterial, but any sort of a separation is actually death. And, and even primarily, as we look into Genesis chapter 3, we recall that, when, that God told them that the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And yet Eve ate and Adam ate and their bodies died did not fall over dead. They did not collapse in a heap. Rather, they were still very much alive bodily. And we discussed this. But we did see something that happened there that was very, very different. They ate of the fruit of the tree and then immediately something happened. The Bible says their eyes were opened. They understood good and evil. They saw that they were naked and they hid themselves from the Lord. They, they, they clothed themselves with fig leaves and then they hid themselves. They experienced two things that they'd never experienced before the moment that they ate of that fruit. The first was shame and the second was fear. And that's where we see that something has happened. Whereas before they were naked and not ashamed, Genesis chapter 2 tells us, because they were living in the virtue both, of course, of the marriage bed as well as the virtue of the Lord and their fellowship with the Lord so that they were in a place of, of virtue. When they partook of that fruit, they stepped out of virtue. They stepped out of the life that was in God. They stepped out of that personal relationship with God and the fellowship, clothed in the virtue and the holiness of God. And they stepped into a new context. They lost something. What they lost was life. Because the Bible tells us that in Christ is life and that life is the light of men. And as they fell out of fellowship with God, they, they passed from life into death. And the evidence that they passed from life into death is that they experienced shame and they experienced fear at the moment of their sin. And so they died in that moment. Now, we also would believe that at, at, at some point soon after this, they would begin to physically, their bodies would begin to physically break down. There would be the beginning of the concept of death itself. Why? Because there is no qualification when the Bible says here in Romans 5 that death came by sin. And so there's no qualification there as it relates to what kind of death. But what we do see is that death is not simply about the body failing. Death is also about a separation, a spiritual separation of our spirits from the life that is in the spirit of God himself. And this is the most natural context for what Paul is saying here. Why? Because Paul is invoking Adam. And Adam didn't physically die the day that he sinned, but he most certainly did spiritually die. He was spiritually separated from God. So we narrow this down to the death of that one man, Adam, on the day of his sin. And if we allow the Bible to be the final authority on itself, then we understand that the death here is not necessarily physical death, not physical death per se, but spiritual separation from fellowship with God. So that by one man, the Bible says, Adam, sin entered into the world. Now, Lucifer, we would presume, had sinned before. Iniquity was found in Lucifer before he then over, uh, overtook the body of the serpent and tempted Adam and Eve. But see, Lucifer had no authority over anything but himself. We know, we presume, based on the revelation of Jesus Christ, that one third of the angels followed Lucifer into his rebellion. But he had no kingdom. He had no dominion. 
So his sin would not pass into the created realm because he had no authority over the created realm. But Adam had authority over the created realm. He was given dominion. So when Adam sinned, that sin passes on to those under whom he had authority. And that's the idea of headship. That somehow Adam's sin, because he had dominion over the created order, connected to all of the created order, including the subsequent human beings that would be born of man. So, the Bible says, by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, this, this uh, idea, and so, death passed upon all men, and then for that, all have sinned. These are actually somewhat ambiguous phrases, especially that one, for that, for that all have sinned. It often carries the idea of because in our Bibles. Death passed upon all men because all have sinned. But it can also carry the idea of by which. Death passed upon all men by which all have sinned. So it can either be cause or effect. And to that end, this verse does not establish when we talk about the controversy between two different types of headship. This verse is not going to be able to answer for us the question of which one. As a matter of fact, no teaching, direct teaching on headship in the Bible is going to answer the question which one is correct. It's going to be primarily based upon what we believe about other doctrines. And we see that all the time, right? Doctrine builds upon doctrine. This is most apparent when we talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ. What we believe about end times is built upon what we believe about so many other different doctrines so that if a person diverts in their belief about several other doctrines, well, they're going to have a different idea about how the end is going to go. We can debate all day about how the end is going to go, but if we have different doctrinal foundations, we're just, we're just whistling into the wind. Because we're never going to settle this debate if we don't agree down here. We've got to, we've got to come to the... The, the agreement down here, and then whatever we agree upon will naturally then blossom into a proper eschatology. Same kind of idea as it relates to headship. What we believe about headship will actually be rooted in what we believe, primarily about the finished work of Jesus Christ and the gospel. You say, well, all Orthodox Christians believe about the same thing about that. Same thing sort of with some nuances, right? And those nuances are what's going to make the difference. So we'll talk about that. Okay, I've got to keep going or this is going to just get too long. Romans 5, 13 through 19. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead... Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. 
For as by one man's obedience, uh, disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So Paul is kind of saying the same thing over and over again here, right? We see this comparison and contrast. One man, sin. Another man, righteousness. One man, death. Another man, life. One thing happened in Adam. That thing was undone in Jesus. And that's what's being taught here. Paul is building an argument about original sin and headship. Verse 12 established that Adam died through sin. As we said in our message on that topic, there was only one prohibition that man had in the garden. Of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat. For the day that that thou doest, thou shalt surely die. Everything else they had in liberty and impurity. Only one thing offended the word, the will, or the character of God. Only one thing could not be done in faith, and that was eating of that fruit. But as we continue through the Bible, what do we see? That death, spiritual separation from God, and then manifested in the reality of men dying, going into the grave, returning to the dust from whence they came, that death still reigned over men from Adam to Moses. And then Paul makes the point here that there is no imputed sin where there is no law. So God had not yet laid down the fullness of his expectations. And he uh, really emphasizes this argument in Romans chapter 7. He said, I was alive once, but then the, the law came and sin revived and I died. And the law brought a consciousness of sin that brought a consciousness of death whereby he felt the weight of that imputed unrighteousness and then fled to Christ eventually to be redeemed. But as we look at this idea here, Paul says, yet even before the law, Moses' time, death still reigned. Even though there was no law given to make clear to man what was and what was not sinful, which was and always has been the exclusive purpose of the law, by the way, even among those who did not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So Adam sinned in that he rebelled against God by partaking of the fruit. Even among those who did not necessarily do the same sin that Adam did, death still reigned. And this is an interesting thing. So um, Cain and Abel and, and Enoch and Noah, they could look back and say, okay, so Adam did this thing and it, it was sin to him. So nobody eat of that fruit anymore. Of course, they couldn't anymore, right? That we'll, we'll see that the, that, that the garden is... Is cordoned off, but um, don't do that. Nobody, nobody do that thing. And yet death still reigned even among those who didn't sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression and even before the law came into effect. And this is an interesting thing. And what this is doing is this is making an argument that there is some intrinsic separation from God that happened in Adam that passed upon men whether or not they knew or did not know of sin. That there was something that was happening in mankind from generation to generation uh, uh, revealed in the fact that men were physically dying, but that as a metaphor for the reality of a separation from God that took place that was happening in men's hearts even before the law and even when they did something that was not after the same template of Adam's transgression. So we have this very interesting situation here. And because death was still experienced among those who had not been given the law yet, who had not eaten of that fruit, we know that there's something that happened in Adam that fundamentally affected mankind. 
that's what we're trying to dig down to. And then Paul says that Adam is the figure of him that is to come. That Adam was a type. That, that, that what Adam, what happened in Adam to all men would happen again to Jesus for all men, only in reverse. That what mankind lost in Adam, they gained back in Jesus. And so this is where we start to think through, well, what happened with Jesus? And this is where we have to get down to our theology of the gospel. Because you say, well, if I'm following this right, if what Paul is saying is right, what happened in Adam is undone in Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Death passed upon all men for that all have sinned, right? But when Jesus died on the cross, that doesn't mean that everybody goes to heaven, we're not universalists here. We don't believe that, that, that everyone will go to heaven because of what Jesus did. There, there are, are some wings of, of Bible-claiming people, I, 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 wings of, I guess we can call it, broader Christianity that would believe that, right? That, okay, Jesus died on the cross, therefore everybody's in. But we're not universalists. And so how, how is this argument consistent that what happened in Adam happened to all men? What happened to Jesus thus also happened to all men because Adam is a type of what Jesus would do. What happened in Adam was undone in Jesus. And this brings us back to the question of headship. Now the question becomes again, so then what happened in Adam? And did Jesus completely undo it? And if so, what does that mean? Through the offense of one, many be dead, drawing a direct connection between Adam's offense and the continuing effect upon others. And while, as I've said, there are a couple of ways we might understand this, as with all interpretive efforts, we call upon the clear to interpret what is unclear. And we allow the example of Jesus' finished work then to help clarify what happened in Adam. So Paul says that by the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So Paul invokes our understanding of redemption to establish our understanding of original sin and thus the subset of headship. Now we understand Jesus' work on the cross will fundamentally establish then how we understand original sin and headship. So let me introduce you to the two primary theories within our circles at least, as it relates to headship. And these are called federal headship and seminal or natural headship. If we accept that there is such a thing as original sin, that there is a sin nature which passes down from man to man, generation to generation, the question then that is left over is how does this nature pass down and what effect has it had upon humanity? And there are these two different competing views of headship within our circles that try to answer this question. You don't have to remember the names, the theological names as it relates to them, but it might be beneficial as you're talking to people, you're talking to someone and there's a slight disagreement or you're coming from something in a little bit of a different angle and you don't exactly know, well, maybe it's that. They just have a slightly different view as it relates to the nature of headship. So federal headship states that Adam was what we call the federal head of the human race, that he was a representative of all humanity, so that when Adam sinned, Adam made a decision, and that decision was one that would affect all of mankind, 
that Adam made the decision for himself and as a representative of the human race, his decision affected everybody. And this is not a hard thing to understand. Adam makes a choice and others are doomed to live within that. We see that all the time. I go to the jail every week. I was talking to a guy just this last week and he was talking about his, his issues with drugs and alcohol. And, and um, as I was talking to him about his addictions, he started using hard drugs when he was 12 years old. And I asked him, well, why did you start using those? And a lot of times it has to do with escapism, trying to get away from something uh, as it relates to an environment or whatever it was. But in his case, he said, no, not really. He said, it's just what my parents did, so it's what I did too. So literally his parents gave him drugs at 12 years old and he started doing drugs with them. And you sit there and you you say, when you think of such a terrible and awful situation, you say, here are parents, terrible, terrible parents, who have effectively condemned their son to this kind of a life through their choices. This happens in the world, right? Parents make decisions and children are affected. It's not a fun thing. It's not a fair thing, but it is the way it goes. Important, powerful people make decisions and we all have to live under the weight of, 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 of those decisions. People in Washington decide they're going to put trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy, and we get to live with the results of that, right? We don't really have a choice over the matter. We, we technically elect them into those, into those positions, but it is what it is. They make the decisions. We live with the consequences. This is kind of a federal headship idea. I didn't make a decision to pump trillions of dollars into the economy. You didn't make a decision to pump trillions of dollars into the economy, but the person who leads us did, and now we suffer for that decision. And that's federal headship. Now, the other theory is called seminal headship or natural headship. And this is derived from a concept found in Hebrews 7. Now, it's been a long time in our evening series since we've been in Hebrews 7. But if you recall back when uh, Paul was discussing the relationship between Melchizedek's priesthood and Aaron's priesthood or the Levitical priesthood, and in verses 5 through 9 of Hebrews 7, Paul argues that the Old Testament itself testifies to the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek over the priesthood of Aaron. And that argument uh, is that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And while Abraham, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, he was submitting himself as the patriarchal head of Israel... He was submitting himself to Melchizedek. And at the time that Abraham made those tithes, the Bible says in Hebrews 7 that Levi was in the loins of Abraham. In other words, that Levi's future genetic reality was, re was realized in Abraham at the time. We would say today that Levi was genetically and spiritually in Abraham and would come from Abraham. Which meant that Levi, if, 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 if Abraham was greater than Levi and Abraham submitted himself to Melchizedek, then by virtue of the fact that Abraham submitted himself to Melchizedek and Levi would be submitted to Abraham by virtue of the fact that he was in Abraham means that Levi was actually submitting himself to Melchizedek. Therefore, the Levitical priesthood is subservient or is, is um, subject, subjugated to the Melchizedekian priesthood by virtue of this genetic spiritual posterity and Abraham submitting himself to Melchizedek. And that kind of idea is the idea that then they carry into Abraham, uh, to Adam. That when Adam sinned, we were in Adam. And because we were in Adam, when he sinned, 
When he submitted himself to sin, we submitted ourselves to sin as well. So it was actually more of like a conscious choice type idea. In federal headship, federal headship believes that Adam, as the representative of the human race, sinned not only for himself, but for the whole human race. Seminal headship does not focus upon Adam being the the head of our race, but rather the whole human race genetically being in Adam. And the distinction would be that the human race does not inherit, inherit Adam's guilt in the same way that we inherit the consequences of our leader's trillion-dollar decisions. In seminal headship, I don't inherit Adam's guilt. I only acquire his sin nature. Because I, too, chose to sin, my guilt is my own because in Adam, I was choosing to sin. So my guilt is my own. My guilt is not human guilt. It is just my guilt. Now, what's the difference? Say, Pastor, who cares? What are, the, what's, what are the implications? Well, the implications of this then is that to the extent that I am born guilty, I am actually only guilty of my own sinful choices so that when I come to Christ, if I were to come to Christ, coming to Christ would be about my sin before Christ And coming to Christ would atone for said sins in my life. And we'll talk about a little bit more about this in just a few minutes as to to how to parse this out. So then federal headship says the whole human race is guilty by virtue of Adam's sin and choice. We are in Adam. We are guilty in Adam. Seminal headship says that the whole of the human race is guilty only at the point that, only to the extent that we have chosen to sin, that we are guilty for our sin, not for humanity's sin. Of course, neither of these terms is used in the Bible, right? Make note of that. You're not going to find federal headship in the Bible. You're not going to find seminal headship in the Bible. These are theological terms that are used to describe a concept. And both of these doctrines acknowledge that Adam brought sin into this world and that every man is a sinner in need of a savior. So we're not dealing with heresy here either way. Both acknowledge man is sinful. Both acknowledge man needs a savior. Both acknowledge Jesus is the only way. So this isn't heresy. This is just nuance. But for we who have listened to my teaching on biblical interpretation that I gave prior to the preaching of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, you know that, as we've said, no doctrine or method, I'm not quite there yet, no doctrine or method of interpretation exists alone. Doctrine builds on doctrine. So then the question is, what do we believe? Well, in order to to state where, where we stand as a church on this issue, We go back to where we stand on the gospel. What do we believe about Jesus' work on the cross? Well, we believe that on the cross, Jesus paid the sin debt of every man, past, present, and future. Not only the sins of a select few, but the sins of everyone. Not just those who choose to believe, but every sin. So that 1 John 2, 2 says that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. But if that's the case... Then we ask that question again. How does anyone go to hell? If Jesus has paid for the sins of the whole world, how does anyone go to hell? And this is where John 3, 16 through 18 comes in. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus tells us that the divine standard for heaven is not sin or no sin. It is to believe on the name of Jesus to be saved. And the divine standard for hell is not sin or no sin. It is to believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be, uh, is to fail to believe on the name of Jesus Christ. He that believeth not is condemned already. But this we understand, and by this we understand that the standard for hell is not intrinsically the individual sins that I commit, but rather it is the sin of unbelief, the failure to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3 that this standard has always been the case, that even going back to Abraham, this is what Paul goes to in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That faith has always been the standard, has always been the condition by which a man is either justified before God or stands unjustified in his sight. To this end, Abraham was not justified because he was sinless, but he was justified because he was faithful. He had faith. And those who fell short of justification fell short not because of sinfulness, but because of faithlessness. So then we believe that on the cross, Jesus not only paid for the sin of all mankind, but also for the sins of all mankind. That every sin man will ever commit is under the cross. And hell is not about the sins that man commits, but rather the sin of unbelief because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, if I carry that understanding into Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, men rest under condemnation already, John chapter 3 tells us, because of unbelief. Men experienced death, Romans chapter 5 says, even when they did not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression. And this lends us to being what we would consider to be a federal headship type of church. That everything that was lost in Adam, this is not taking into account my personal sins, which are only manifestations of my separation from God, but the very essence of the separation itself that was lost in Adam was entirely repaired in Christ. That everything that Adam chose and all of the reality of separation from God through sin was taken care of, was, was lost in Adam, and that separation through sin was 100% taken care of in Jesus. So that the standard by which a person stands before God, guilty or not guilty, is not the standard of his personal sins. Those have already been taken care of on the cross. But whether or not he has accepted the finished work of Jesus Christ, whether or not he has believed or not believed, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is a slight nuance. This is a, a little bit of a different way of looking at things, right? Whereby we do not say that man will stand before God and because of the sins he has committed, he will spend eternity in hell because Jesus took those sins on the cross, but rather he will spend eternity in hell if he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that's that slight nuance that would lend us to be a federal headship church as opposed to a seminal headship type of church. Now, as I said, both are entirely orthodox. 
But there is a, a large wing of, of the church, and again, this is not a, 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 a major issue. We, this is not a heresy issue, but a large wing of the church that would say, no, that's not true. Mankind will be judged for the sins he commits, and when he is burning in hell, he will be burning in hell for the actual sins he commits. But by virtue of that, the, the, the concept there is that either God is double punishing for sin. He punished Jesus for sin, and then he's punishing that man for, sin, for his sin again. Or Jesus' death on the cross did not actually atone for all men's sin. It only atoned for the sins of those who would accept his gift. And everyone else is, is, is stuck in their, in their sins, and they have to pay for their sins. And this is the nuance. Typically speaking, in, in a Reformed circle, a Calvinistic circle, they would lean heavily upon that idea that man's going to pay for his own sins. And they believe that because, of course, they believe that God has elected only a subset of people to be saved. And so Jesus Christ, his blood was shed and only paid for the elect. Then in non-Calvinist circles, this can be the case as well, where they say that Jesus' Jesus's blood made provision for every person's sin to be forgiven but that that provision will only be applied to those who accept the gospel by grace through faith. And, of course, we would, I would disagree with that personally, but, again, have no particular problem. I'm not, you know, I, I think Calvinism has a lot more, a lot of other problems. We, we, we do not agree with Calvinism as a doctrine, but this other idea that Jesus' blood made provision for sin, I can get behind that. I don't agree with it, but, again, none of this is in the realm of heresy. This is just in the realm of disagreement. But this is where we, we, uh, we stand on that. So stepping away from the controversy, however, and I hope that was clear. I'm trying to not take too much of our time today. But stepping away from the controversy, I'd like to think about this. Either way, wherever you settle in on that issue of how, how a man will, will, how God has dealt with man's sin, I think Romans 5 says that what happened in Adam was completely undone in Jesus if what happened in Adam happened to every man, then what happened in Jesus had to happen to every man as well. Not that they're all saved, but that the sin was atoned for, and now each man has to come to a point of decision where they either acknowledge that Jesus Christ took that sin on the cross and their faith ushers them into salvation and eternal life, or they reject the reality their sins are still paid for, but because they have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, they are found on that day guilty of the sin of unbelief, and they are sent to the lake of fire. I believe that makes the most sense in trying to, to reconcile what Romans 5 says about the reality of Adam and Jesus and what John 3 says about the reality of, of unbelief being the condition for condemnation and, and, and redemption and the nature of Jesus' finished work on the cross. But again, stepping out of that controversy, thinking about headship and original sin, going away from the nuances and talking about the fact that they at least exist, Romans 5 makes that very clear. There came a day in the garden when Adam made a choice, and that choice had a fundamental and dramatic impact upon the history of humanity. And on that day, the course of human history was set, leading to a place where judgment came upon all men unto condemnation. But Romans 5 tells us that even this most tragic day in human history was not outside of God's plan. And this is the neat thing. We would read Genesis chapter 3, and, if we're, and we'll, we'll get to the gospel in Genesis next week. 
But we would read Genesis chapter 3. And if we were reading it, if we were reading the Bible cover to cover, and God had given us spiritual insight to understand what was happening in the scriptures, but we did not know yet of Jesus. Genesis 3, the fall of man, the, the, the entering into sin, would be a, a devastating, an absolutely devastating moment in human history. But what's so neat about this devastating moment in human history as we continue to see the revelation progress into Romans chapter 5 is that even on that tragic day in human history that was not outside of God's sovereign love, mercy, and plan. Because yes, through Adam's rebellion came death. And through death came sorrow and fear and shame, sin. But it also came something else. It came a scenario where what was done in Adam could be undone in Christ so that man would not just live in, in a, a perfect, in, innocent environment, but where man could be ushered into immortality and eternal glory through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Adam's sin is a figure of Christ's redemption. In Adam all died so that in Christ all who would receive could be made alive. And in doing so, accomplish a much greater purpose that rests upon the heart of God. And we've talked about this. That what God has always wanted was not just men who would obey him. God does not want a bunch of robots who are forced by fear or simply by right to subjugate themselves to the reality of a sovereign God. God created man in his image and after his likeness specifically because God wanted man to have a relationship with him. God wanted to fellowship with him. And so what God has always wanted is love. Not just a relationship by default, but that means a choice. That's why that tree had to be in the garden. That's why God had to give Adam that choice because God does not just want a creation that fears him and obeys him. God wants a creation that loves him. And in order to have a creation that loves him, God must give a choice. And so there would be a choice. And that choice is the choice that we find today. Shedding all of the complications of sin and the reality of God's justice, where man it must be separated from God because of his sinful choices. God dealt with all of that on the cross. That is no longer the factor by which man can enter into relationship with God. God has settled through Jesus Christ that factor. That is his death. But then he says, how much more, Paul says in Romans 5, shall we be saved by his life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, man is now confronted with this choice. Do I believe unto life or do I refuse unto death? Well, yes, pastor, but what about my sin? That's dealt with already. See, that's the beauty of it. That even on that day so many years ago, God had a plan to deal with sin, and now he's dealt with it. Now the question is, will I receive it? And of course, that is the message of John three sixteen. So we talk through all of the various elements of the doctrine of headship and all of the, the doctrine and all of the, the intricacies. And uh, this message was perhaps a little bit um, academic today. And, um, but I hope you learned something. And yet it comes down to this. All of this points to the simple reality that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
All of these layers that I've built on top are for you to understand a little bit of what's happening behind the scenes with some debates and uh, with some nuances of doctrine. But at the end of the day, it does come back to this. All that was lost in Adam was restored in Christ. And that leaves us in a place of relative simplicity. Do I accept what Jesus did on the cross as the full and only atonement for my sin so that I may enter back into a relationship with God so that the life that is in God might be restored into me so that my spirit might be made alive by the spirit of God and I can be restored to the fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden? Or do I persist in the separation that was realized on the day that they ate of the fruit? Where they succumb to the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And they pursued those things to the detriment of themselves, believing the lie that they would progress, that they would be made better, that there would be through these, these deceitful lusts a, a progression in, the Christian, or in, in, in their lives. And they listened to the lie and they fell into fear and shame and guilt and condemnation. And so we come to said same crossroads today. It's, a, it's the crossroads of the gospel and it's there in simplicity. If you have never come to that point where you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, where you've believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, would you make today to the day? And for we who are in Christ... For we who have made that decision, let's remember what it's intended to do. That when we accept Christ as our Savior and the Spirit of God reunites us in fellowship with the Lord, those characteristics, fear, shame, guilt, those are to be done away, taken on by Christ, nailed to His cross so that we can live in the joy and the fellowship that is in Christ as we abide in Him. So the question is, how are you doing today? Are you abiding? Is that what you're experiencing? Does your life look more like Adam and Eve before they ate of the fruit or after they ate of the fruit? Are you realizing the joys of the life that is in Christ? Are you realizing that peace, that, that love, love the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance? Or are you persisting in those things that bring only shame and guilt and fear? Jesus settled this on the cross. Yep, we lost it in Adam, but we gained it back in Christ. Let's tap into it. Let's live by it. And in doing so, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We can and we will please God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.